0: And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, in Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized That they had been with Jesus. This is God's Word. Please be seated. I want to imagine for a moment what it would be like to grow up in Israel in the time of Jesus, first century AD time period. At about five years old, boys and girls would begin studying the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They would begin studying this at synagogue. And as they studied, their education would really be centered around the reading and reciting, copying and memorization of scripture. That was the heart of Jewish education in the first century. And and it's likely that by the time these students had grown up to be about 12 years old, when they were ready to graduate to the next level, they had most likely memorized the the entirety of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, This is why in Luke's gospel, we see Jesus in the temple at 12 years old, and he's kind of going back and forth pound for pound with the scribes and teachers in the temple. It's because he'd already memorized Genesis through Deuteronomy by 12 years old. And so after that, what would happen around that time is that most of the students would either go home and work in the the home with the family, or maybe they would learn the family trade. They'd learn to be a fisherman or uh, a mason or something like that. But for the elite, the the ones who were the best Bible students, they would continue on. They'd probably learn a trade, but alongside that, they'd continue deepening their knowledge of the Torah, as well as the prophets in the writings, which is what we would call the rest of the Old Testament. And as they studied and learned and reflected and, and studied even interpretations of the text, they would begin preparing themselves to potentially become disciples of a rabbi. Now only the best and the brightest, only the ones that excelled beyond all the other ones through this stage would even attempt to become a disciple of a rabbi. And so instead of, uh, you know, like we have now digital access to all kinds of texts and things like that, back then the only scrolls of scripture were in the synagogue. And so if you were gonna do your homework, if you will, you had to memorize the text. You had to know it by heart. And so the best and the brightest began to emerge were the ones that knew the Bible better than all the rest. And what would happen is they would find a rabbi and if the rabbi would have them, they would be with them 24-7. They would be with him as he spoke and as he slept, as he taught, as he did work with his hands, as he ate all the time because the disciple would be wanting to watch the rabbi's way of life. Um, The Bible teacher, Ray Vanderlaan, says it like this. A student wants to know what the teacher knows. A disciple wants to become what the teacher is. That's a distinction. And so the only way that they could become like their rabbi was to be with their rabbi all the time. And so what would happen is one of these outstanding students would approach a rabbi and they would ask. They would say, Rabbi, your reputation has preceded you. May I follow you? Which is another way of saying, hey, do you think if I tried really, really hard, I could become like you? To which the rabbi would reply, I'm honored, my son. Recite Leviticus. And they would say, that was second grade. Easy. Boom. Done. On the spot. Great. Well done. How about Deuteronomy? Easy. Okay, next I want you to tell me all of the ways in which the prophet Isaiah alludes to the book of Genesis. There's 50 of them riddling off one by one, all the way through the book of Isaiah, and missed one, to which the rabbi would very kindly, warmly say, my son, you are wise and godly. You know the scriptures. Learn the trade of your father. You do not have the gifts to become like me. You see the rigor of what it was like to become a rabbi, a disciple of a rabbi. Those outstanding students would strive for excellence, would study the Torah, would learn the scriptures by heart, and yet most didn't make it. With this backdrop, I want to look at our text today, because it's going to be really helpful to kind of frame out how radically different Jesus is in Mark chapter 3. So what we're going to look at is how we must be with Jesus to become like Jesus, Simple point. To, become, to be with Jesus in order to become like Jesus. And we're gonna, I'm going to have two kind of subpoints that are going to help us see that. The first one is, what happens to those who are with Jesus? What happens to those who are with Jesus? And the second one is, how can we be with Jesus? How can we be with Jesus today? Well, if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up with me and open to Mark chapter 3. Um, if you have a worship guide, you should see it on there as well. And let's look at verse 13 together. It says, And Jesus went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now pause. Given the context you just heard, do you see how radical it is what Jesus is doing here in these few short words? Right? Rabbis did not choose their disciples. Disciples chose their rabbis and then had to qualify in order to be with their rabbis. It's in a lot of ways, it's kind of like colleges today. Rabbis competed to have the best disciples. And so they, there was kind of a contest in order to get in. Now, many of you probably remember this. I remember this in high school, which was there was kind of a day towards the end of spring semester when all the seniors were getting their either acceptance or rejection letters from their universities of choice, right? And it was either the best day or the worst day. I, uh, like most other things that were difficult at that time in my life, just kind of opted out of all of it. Uh, My college application would have been like, oh, decent GPA, all right, SAT scores, extracurriculars. uh, You like to hang out at the beach and played a lot of Call of Duty, okay. Uh, And so believe it or not, Ivy League schools were not seeking me out to have me come and be one of their disciples. It just wasn't happening. Because like colleges, uh, similar to how colleges are today, rabbis only wanted the best and the brightest. And so when Jesus turns and it says here that he called them to be with him, he's reversing everything. It shows us how radical it is when in John 15, verse 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, I chose you. We can see how powerful that was. And so the text says here, Jesus calls those whom he desires. That's what it says in in verse 13. And so what that means is if you're a disciple of Jesus today, it's because he desired you. He wanted you. He called you to be his, to be with him. You didn't prove yourself to him. He wasn't kind of making up an A squad and you just happened to make the cut. Instead, Jesus chose you because he desired you. And the text goes on, it says, Jesus called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. There's a summons and a response. There's Jesus taking the initiative, moving towards, and we respond by coming to him. And this isn't just a one-time thing. This happens all the time. This is happening in this very moment. Today, if you hear his voice, come to him. Respond to him. Don't harden your hearts. Because Jesus is calling because he desires you. And the text goes on to explain why does he call us? What is the purpose in Jesus' call? Look at verse 14. And Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might Be with him. He desires you. He calls you so that he can be with you. That's what the text says here. That the purpose of Jesus calling us to be his disciples is to enjoy the benefits of personal communion with him. And so Jesus doesn't, uh, when we come to Jesus, we don't get anything other than Jesus. In other words, everything that we could ever want or imagine is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. We come to him so that we might be with him. Jesus, coming to Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is the goal because he calls us that we might be with him. And according to the text, what is Jesus' desire? To be with his disciples. So not only do we get to be with him, but he is to be with us. And that's what he calls us for. So if you look in verse 14, it says, the call to discipleship is that they might be with him. But there's a further call. It's the call, you could say, to apostleship. And that is that he might send them out. That he might send them out. And the order matters. They're called first to be with Jesus and then second to be sent by Jesus. That really matters even for our own life of formation and mission. That we are, the the order is about how we are spending time with Jesus before we do tasks for Jesus, if you will. Okay, why this matters is because it means that Jesus wants our presence before he wants our service. What this means is that Jesus is more concerned with getting you than with getting anything out of you. He didn't need anything from you. He wants you and he calls you, he calls me to be with him. That's what discipleship is about. But notice that Jesus calls them to be with him and that they might become like him and then sends them out to do the very things that he's been doing in the Gospels up until this point. So up to this point in his life, he was teaching, preaching, proclaiming the kingdom, casting out demons, healing, extending the kingdom. Those are the two things Jesus has been doing up to this point in the the Gospels. And so he calls his disciples to be with him and then sends them out with his authority to go do the very things that he's been doing. This is because a disciple's life is radically reoriented about around Jesus to be with him, to be shaped by him, and then to be sent by him out into the world on mission. If not, you're not a disciple. But we see who Jesus' disciples are here. Look with me at verse 16 through 19. It says, Jesus appointed the twelve Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, Iscariot, who betrayed him. Notice who begins the list. Peter, James, and John. If you know your Bible well, you know that this is Jesus' core group of disciples. Right? Like if Jesus was in a formation circle, it would be with Peter, James, and John. That's just the, those are his guys, if you will. And even in the text here, you notice um, these are the only people that he gives nicknames to. Uh, I'm known for giving nicknames to people. My poor wife and child have too many to count. But the reason is because I'm really Christ-like. Jesus gives nicknames to people. And so, and Jesus actually gives really cool nicknames, right? Instead of Simon, he's like, your name's going to be The Rock. This is before Dwayne Johnson too, but it was still cool back then. And then he looks at James and John. He says, hey, you guys are going to be called the Thunder Boys. Like, this is cool to be with Jesus. He nicknames these three men, these three that are in his kind of core group, his inner circle, if you will. And I think there's a reason for this. I I actually don't know why these names, but they've got significance because they're in the Bible and the Holy Spirit does not waste his breath. And so Jesus gives these nicknames. I think it's it's kind of a double entendre. He's speaking to who they are right here and now before they've been with Jesus. But he's also giving them names that they might live into after they've been with Jesus. This is what I mean. Peter is a rock in the sense that he is hard-headed. Right? If you read the gospel, you just know that that's Peter. James and John are sons of thunder in that they are rash and irascible. They just kind of fly off the handle. And so that's true of them before they're with Jesus, or maybe even during. But we also get pictures of these men after they've been with Jesus. And and Peter, rather than being, uh, you know, stubborn and fiery, becomes like Jesus, and now he's stable and firm, rock-like. James and John, uh, John in particular, goes from being this kind of son of thunder, if you will, to being an author of five of the books of the New Testament, all of which thunder with power to this day. And so these men are given nicknames by Jesus that say something about who they are and about who they are going to become. And if you read the book of Revelation, you'll notice that there's a name that he's given to each one of his disciples that only he knows. And I wonder if the same thing's going on. If it names us in both ways. And so what I want to do is I want to look at Peter, James, and John, these three guys, because they're highlighted in this text. And I want to see what these guys are like. Like Jesus called those to be with him whom he desired, right? Remember, Jesus chose these guys. And we're going to get some glimpses in the stories from the gospels of what these guys are like. Like what's the raw material that Jesus is working with? Well, uh, in the story, in Luke chapter nine, there's a story uh, about the disciples, how they're about to enter into a village, but they're kind of rejected. They're barred from coming in. And James and John see this, and this is what they say. I'm quoting the Bible here. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Like, who does that? Like, Elijah did that in the Old Testament. And these guys are like, hey, you know what? If you want, Jesus, you want us to get this? Like, it's cool, we got this. Like when I was in high school, I went through this tough guy phase. This is before I belonged to Jesus and had been with Jesus, okay? Um, And so I had this tough guy phase going on where I like to get into fist fights. And there was this friend of mine, his name was Blake. If you knew Blake, he was a beast of a man, all right? He was Hulk-like. And if you know me, even in this very moment, I've never been much more than lanky, we could say. And so what happened though, was when I was at a party or somewhere out and about, I could run my mouth if Blake was there because I knew I had the big guns backing me up, right? That's what James and John are doing here. They've been rolling around with Jesus, the one who makes demons tremble, and so they think they can run their mouth. Hey, you want us to call down fire? We can get on that, Jesus, if you want. Like, if I'm Jesus, we're not gonna go there. But this is what the text says. It says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. (laughs) So he dealt with it, And I think that's actually important. You know that you're with the the real Jesus, not some cultural fabricated Jesus, is if sometimes he calls you out, if sometimes he challenges you. The next story I want to look at comes from a little bit later, which is in Mark 10. And James and John, again, they come up to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Right? Like you can hear kind of. Like, I love the audacity of that question or that statement. Children do this. Hey, can you do me a favor? But I'm not going to tell you what it is until you say yes. That's what they're doing here. And Jesus is so patient with them. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, you know, Jesus, when you come into your glory, we just want that you would grant us to sit at your right hand and at your left hand. What this is is, hey, Jesus, when you take over, can we get seats in your cabinet? Like maybe secretary of defense. Remember that whole fire from heaven thing? Like nobody's going to touch you. I promise. Just make, put me in that spot. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you do not know what you are asking. Translation, you have no idea what you're talking about. And when the other disciples heard it, it says that they became indignant at James and John which we can assume is because they didn't think of it first, right? Like they beat them to the punch in asking for these seats of power and authority when Jesus comes in his kingdom. Finally, we look at Peter. Uh, And for the first Pope, my man's got a lot of faults and failings. Like we could tell story after story after story of how Jesus says something like, get behind me, Satan. Like you're not doing well, all right, in your discipleship if Jesus calls you Satan. Um, and, and then there's other stories of where Jesus is like, I'm going to wash your feet. And P- Peter's like, no, you're not touching me. He's is like, well, then you don't have any part with me then. He's like, okay, fine. Right? Or you could even look at the time when Peter, James, and John go into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. This is the worst night of Jesus's life. And he says, hey, will you just pray? Just stay awake and pray. I'm going to go over here and pray. I want you to do that. Pray for me. And he comes back time and time and time again, and they're sleeping. Peter, James, and John. These are the These are like the all-stars on his team. But really, I think it comes down to uh, Peter's most dastardly deed, if you will, was when he denied Jesus. I don't think it gets worse than that. Right, these, it's important to, to point out too because Jesus called these men to be with him. These are the ones that he chose. Like Jesus chose the ones who are brash and irreverent. Jesus chose those who are, arrogant, but they don't even have the social graces to be subtle about it. Like at least when we're arrogant, we, we've, we're subtle. We're a little bit more subtle than these guys. They don't even have that. Jesus called these men to be with him, that they might become like him. And so we see this list of disciples is actually quite interesting because it begins in verse 16 with Peter, Jesus's denier, and it ends with Judas, Jesus's betrayer. Jesus has bookended a list of disciples. One is going to deny him. The other one's going to betray him. Everybody in in between is going to abandon him. That's a failure. Like you failed as a rabbi if that's the case. He should have had tryouts like everybody else. He should have had them at least submit a resume and check the references. But he didn't do that. And so we look at Peter's denial, just just a cursory reading. All four gospel accounts show that Peter, the rock, crumbled on the night of Jesus' arrest. And it's crazy because it's not even like he denied Jesus to some big, beefy Roman soldier. The text in all four gospel accounts says it was a servant girl. Girl. Like this is probably a teenage girl. Girl. Some of you are parents of teenagers, you're like, you know what? We sympathize with Peter, we can get it. They can be really difficult sometimes. Right? And you you feel Peter on this one. But listen, what I'm saying is nobody had a knife to his throat. And he denied Jesus. But Jesus knew what he was doing. He didn't go after the best and the brightest like most rabbis would have done. When we look at Jesus' list of disciples here, and we even look at the church today, we see that Jesus is actually up to something. Because Jesus isn't looking... He's not after those that are looking for a new hobby. He's after those who are looking for a new life. This list of disciples, all of those men flunked out of Torah school. They didn't make it past age 12, I should say. they have been doing trades with their fathers. And so why that's significant is Jesus took those who are hopeful that maybe they could become like this rabbi. The one rabbi who actually chooses me, I don't have to choose him. Who qualifies me, I don't have to qualify myself. And so Jesus takes these men because he desires to be with them. Because he's not just about new kind of habit formation. Jesus is about whole life renovation. He plans to change them from the inside out. But his list begins with a denier and ends with a betrayer. And, and the name Judas has become synonymous, kind of like Benedict Arnold, right? With, with being a backstabber. And yet, his name's not expunged from this list. It's there. It says, Who betrayed him, but it's not taken off the list. Now, we confess often here uh, the Apostles' Creed. It's one of the oldest, most ancient statements of faith we have. And in the Apostles' Creed, it says uh, that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, and that he descended into hell. Now, there's debates and uh, discussion around what this actually means, that Jesus descended into hell. Um, and, and we have to take into consideration that Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, one of his last things he said was, It is finished. So Jesus isn't doing more work in hell. And I was startled when I read one theologian who said, Uh, What Jesus was doing when he descended into hell is he was looking for Judas. Now, I actually don't believe that's true. (laughs) Biblically, I think you have a hard time making that case. But as a parable, I think it gets at something at the heart of Jesus. The one whose mission he said was to come to seek and save the lost, not the found. And so, what we see in Jesus choosing his disciples is that he's after those who have nothing to offer in and of themselves. So that when he comes and says, come, be with me, become like me, they're ready to jump at the occasion because they want to be like that man. He's given them hope that they didn't have before. And so what Jesus does is on the cross, he's the the kind of savior who doesn't give up on anybody, not even the most dastardly backstabber in the history of the world. Jesus on the cross shows us one who's willing to sink to the depths of hell in order to be with those whom he desires. Jesus is Emmanuel. That's one of his names, which means God with us. This withness is at the heart of what his mission was. This life, death, and resurrection was about making this a reality. And we see the transformative power of Jesus' death so that we could be with him and his resurrection so that we could become like him when we look at what came of Peter and John. So if we look at Acts 4, Peter and John are actually still teaching and healing. The very two things that they learned from Jesus and the very things that Jesus sent them out to do. Teach and to heal. And they're doing this like Jesus. And just like Jesus, they get arrested for it. And then comes this verse that we have on our worship guide. Acts 4 verse 13. It says, Now when the rulers saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Why? Because they had recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see, there's something about this combination of courage, despite commonness, that has Jesus' fingerprints all over it. Jesus, the one, or I'm sorry, sorry, Peter, the one who denied Jesus, now is defying the very people who executed Jesus. It's because this holy boldness is a mark of what it means, or what it looks like to have been with Jesus. Like, if you were to summarize maybe your desire as a disciple, I think I could summarize mine in that people would recognize that I have been with Jesus. That they'd look at my life. I wouldn't even necessarily open my mouth. And they would recognize that I have been with Jesus. That's the desire of every disciple. And so what does it mean to be with Jesus in a transformative way? That's what I want to look at as we close. What does it mean? How can we be with Jesus today in a transformative way? Well, in order to be with Jesus, we have to go where he promised that we'd be able to find him. And so what I want to look look at as we close is at least six places that Jesus has promised his presence. Here's the six. They're going to be brief. Word, prayer, community, the poor, sacraments, and spirit-filled mission. Alright, again, that's word, prayer, community, the poor, sacraments, and spirit-filled mission. These are the places Jesus has promised his presence. <clears throat> we can be with Jesus in his word. In CBR, our Community Bible Reading, we read a story in 1 Samuel 3. The story of the prophet Samuel when he was a young boy, and he's hearing God calling him. And eventually he realizes what's going on. He says, yes, Lord, speak, Lord, your servant hears. Um, And and at the end of that story, in 1 Samuel 3.21, it says this, the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. We dwell in the word of the Lord because we find there the Lord of the word. Um, As a church, we are about this. It's why you'll rarely hear us, if ever, come up here and preach anything but the Bible. Because we believe that as this word is being proclaimed, as it's being sung, as it's being celebrated, uh, Jesus is present to us through it. It's why we have community Bible reading where we gather as a community around the word in meditation and in prayer. It's because we know that we can be with Jesus in his word. The second one is we can be with Jesus in prayer. Now most of you are going to know this verse from coffee cups. Uh, Jeremiah 29 11 says this, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. We seek the Lord through prayer and we find him there. You just heard us get done talking about the seek night, a night of prayer and praise that we've got planned. And that's because we really believe that as we gather together as the people of God and seek Him through prayer, we will find Him. And so, we believe that we can be with Jesus in wholehearted prayer. Third, we can be with Jesus by being with the poor. Uh, At the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 25, Jesus says this, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Sidebar. The definition or the description of poor or poverty in the Bible is much broader than just economics. And you see that as this definition here. These are all ways in which you can talk about the poor. Okay, sidebar over. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, Jesus is present when we are with and for the poor. We find Jesus present there. And so at New City, uh, this spring, community groups are going to be kind of banding together in order to put on Jobs Partnership uh, in the Paramore App neighborhood. <laughs> and as well as in our next sermon series, we're going to be exploring what it looks like to steward our life and our resources uh, to become like Jesus in the way that he loves and serves the poor. There's more details on both of those things to come. But for now, what I want you to hear me say is that we we pour out ourselves for the poor, so that we can be with Jesus. We can be with Jesus in community, number four. In Acts 9, um, Saul, Paul, the the one who had become the famous missionary apostle, uh, is found killing Christians, or as the text says, those belonging to the way, which I think is a really cool way to talk about Christians, if it didn't sound super cultish, nowadays, (laughs) Uh, but anyways, He's killing those who belong to the way and the risen Jesus shows up, knocks him down and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which is confusing. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. If you heard this, Saul is killing Christians. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because there's solidarity between the head and the body. Between Jesus and his church. So to be with the people of God is to be with Jesus. It's why we gather together here on Sundays. It's why we gather together in community groups. It's why we gather together in formation circles. Is because there's something real happening. We can become like Jesus when we are with Jesus, with the people of Jesus. We can be with Jesus through the sacraments. In a moment, you're going to hear Mike come up here and quote Jesus who says, This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. And what we believe is happening there, that the Holy Spirit, as we eat and drink this uh, bread and wine, that the Holy Spirit is bringing us into the presence of Jesus. We believe that. It's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week here at New City. It's why next weekend we're going to be celebrating the sacrament of baptism because we believe that Jesus is present in these. Finally, we can be with Jesus in spirit-filled mission. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, Jesus sends his disciples out on his grand mission for the church, and he says, I am with you always. In John's account of this, John 20, he says uh, that Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Received the Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus is with us through the presence of his Holy Spirit as we are engaged in mission for our city. And so we are sent out on mission. And every week what happens is you hear a call to worship. Jesus is calling disciples to himself that they might be with him. And then he is sending them out with a blessing, with a benediction, with the Holy Spirit, out on submission. Just like he did in Mark chapter 3. That's why we do this. And so a life of word and prayer in community with the poor, engaged in spirit-filled sacramental worship and mission is how we are with Jesus today. Again, the goal is to be with Jesus, to draw on his presence in order to become like him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you gave us the good gift, which is your son. In the fullness of time, you sent forth your Son and your Spirit uh, to be with, that we might become one like Jesus. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Draw us to Jesus this morning. Through his word, through his sacrament, through spirit-filled worship, send us out on mission, in community, for the poor. We pray this in his name. Amen.